Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, the late Christopher Hitchens famously said that religion poisons everything. And in his book about that topic, God is Not Great, he went through some of the evil things that the supposed Christians had done over the centuries. And when you look at some of the history, Christian history of the church, it's hard to disagree with Christopher Hitchens in some areas. Well, what is the true story? What is a balanced story of church history? Well, I'm excited today because I've read a book called Bullies and Saints by Dr. John Dixon. In fact, I thought it was so good, I read it twice. And uh, I wanted to get Dr. Dixon on the podcast, and we were able to finally get today as the day because Dr. Dixon teaches down under. He teaches the historical Jesus, uh, historical Jesus courses at University of Sydney. He also is a visiting professor at Oxford University. Yes, that, that Oxford University. Last week, as you know, we had Dr. John Lennox on. Well, today we have another Oxford professor, Dr. John Dixon, and this book, Bullies and Saints, the subtitle is called An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Church, or, or, sorry, of Christian History. And Dr. Dixon is a wonderful historian and storyteller. He's also a, mu a musician. And you're going to want to get uh, used to listening to his podcast every week. The podcast is called Undeceptions. And if you like this podcast, you're going to love his podcast because not only does he have great apologetic and historical content on there, but ladies and gentlemen, it is so well produced. So it's a great privilege to have Dr. John Dixon on. Here he is, ladies and gentlemen, the great John Dixon from down under. Dr. Dixon, how are you? What an introduction. I, I don't know what to say, Frank, except I, I don't deserve to be put in the same sentence as Professor John Lennox. I, I'm just what's called a lowly visiting academic at the University of Oxford in the Classics Faculty. Well, John, I, I John is to, out of this world. <laughs> I beg to differ, John, because he, Dr. Lennox has actually endorsed your book. Yeah. And he says this, superbly well-informed historical analysis at its best, I unhesitantly uh, easy for me to say, unhesitatingly recommend it, get it, and share it. So we're sharing it right now. Let me start with this, John. Why did you write this book, Bullies and Saints? And aren't you letting the Christian team down a little bit by airing the church's dirty laundry in public? I was a little worried about that. And because I've given so many lectures over the years <clears throat> where, where I have aired the dirty laundry um, and had, you know, Q&A sessions where Christians have said, hey, why do you go on about all those bad things we've done? Uh, I, I was prepared for it. I, I feel the weight of it, if, if I'm honest. But, but the fact is, the bad news is already out. You know, right. I mean, Christopher Hitchens didn't make up everything in his book. Uh, there, there's some really bad stuff in Christian history. And the only way to respond to this very widespread feeling that Christianity has only damaged the world is to be really honest about the way uh, the, the church as an institution, 
pretended Christians and even real Christians have done terrible things and they've done it in the name of Christ. So I wanted to be honest about the bad. Uh, but that gives me, I hope, an opportunity to say, hey, let me be honest about the incredible good that the church has uniquely given uh, to our Western world. And hopefully the skeptic will think, okay, so this isn't one of those attempts to whitewash uh, church history. It's, uh, it's balanced. It's honest. And I'm really thankful that um, atheists have been saying that about the book in, in the reviews that have come out since, um, uh, since whenever it came out, June or whatever. Well, you actually read the Audible book, which I have as well, and you do a wonderful job there. So, friends, the, na the name of the book, again, is called Bullies and Saints. And, John, in the first couple of chapters, you cover the early believers, say the first 250 years of, of church history, and you call these people good losers. <laughs> what, what do you mean by that? What do you mean that they were good losers? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> well, on the one hand, they lost. A lot. <laughs> I mm -hmm. mean, property, mm -hmm. uh, social status, their lives uh, sometimes, money, yeah. <laughs> their lives, mm -hmm. um, and um, I wouldn't go so far as to say you know they were persecuted, you know, consistently throughout that first two hundred and fifty years, but they were persecuted uh, periodically and quite dramatically. We we have clear evidence of persecutions uh, in the sixties AD, in the one tens, uh, the one eighties, the two forties, the two seventies, and then the early three hundreds. So there's four, maybe five periods of dramatic persecution. And so they lost a lot of things, but what I'm saying is they were really good losers, um, that they would they, that somehow, you know, you'd burn their church down and they'd smile sweetly back at you and stay true to Christ. Um, you'd take all their scriptures away and burn them, which happened um, periodically. Um, and, and the Christians uh, had had uh, secret copies <laughs> that they didn't hand up to the Romans. And uh, so, you know, it's this sense that they were able to turn the other cheek. They didn't get resentful. They, they remained super confident. And they were good losers in the sense that even though to all intents and purposes and to the outside, it looked like they'd lost. They were losing. They just continued believing, praying, and persuading, knowing that they're the death and resurrection people. So, you know, a bit of death never hurt anyone, right? And so right. Uh, and God would vindicate them. And, you know, the course of history tells that, that tale. Now, John... Uh, I may be confusing. I, I listened to your book and, and Tom Holland's book at the same time. And Tom Holland, the great English historian, uh, endorses your book as well. Tom Holland, mm -hmm. as you know, wrote the book Dominion. In fact, we even talk about it in your book. Yep. Was it you or he that said that the Christians may have been the first group in history that didn't become embittered by all the persecution they went through? I, uh, well, it's certainly a point that I make, but I, I'm sure yeah. uh, Tom Tom would would agree with that. Um, it is striking when you read the primary evidence that they continued to exhort one another to, amidst the most terrible insults right through to executions to love, right? I mean, mm. they'd read the Sermon on the Mount, and you know what? They thought they they were the words of of life. You know, right. um, they'd read the gospels. They knew that um, death precedes resurrection, and so they they lived like it. They didn't need to be self righteous or smug or angry or bitter. Now, you also write that once the church did engage in some very immoral behavior, you write this. You say it's obvious that we will not find an explanation for the church's hatred and violence in the origins of the movement. Why is that significant, John? 
I think it's significant because when people like Christopher Hitchens say, you know, that Christianity is inherently violent and bigoted and hateful, uh, they tend to use stories throughout Christian history and and present that as proof. But um, that would only be proof uh, of Christians um, turning away from their foundations. Uh, if it is the case that original Christianity, that is the founding documents, the New Testament, the founding centuries, all the many documents we have about Christians and from Christians in those first two or three centuries, if, if there you can't find any examples of that hatred and violence, and all you find is consistently Christians being good losers, then um, obviously the, the problem with bad Christianity isn't Christianity. <laughs> it's, it's bad Christianity. It's going astray from, right. from the original foundational tune. See, if Christians were from the beginning warrior-like, you know, uh, conducting, you know, Christian jihad, uh, executing people, um, denouncing people, if that were like there in the New Testament and there in the first centuries, then you might have a case. But, uh, you know, we don't have that case. The book is called Bullies and Saints, an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. My guest is Dr. John Dixon, and he hails from Sydney, Australia. He is a professor down at the University of Sydney. He also is a visiting professor at Oxford University. He's an historian. He's written several other books as well, some even on Christian apologetics. So he is our guest today. We're going to go a lot further in Bullies and Saints, and you're going to love the illustration that Dr. Dixon came up with to illustrate this point. That bad behavior of Christians doesn't necessarily reflect necessarily reflect back on Christ. So don't go anywhere. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turk on the American Family Radio Network. We're back in two minutes. See you then. If you're low on the FM dial looking for national public radio, go no further here. We're actually going to tell you the truth here. That's our intent anyway. You're not going to hear this on NPR. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek on the American Family Radio Network. My guest is Dr. John Dixon. Before I get back to Dr. Dixon, I want to mention the Sunday after Thanksgiving, I'll be at Freedom House Church right here in Charlotte, North Carolina. That's a home game. I'm looking forward to just staying home and speaking at a church. Uh, the information's on our website, crossexamine.org. Just look at events and then Frank Turek calendar. And that'll be in Port St. Lucie, Florida, a week or so after that. And then the week after that, uh, up in Seattle, Washington. Check the website for that. Click on events and you will see them there. If you're in any, in any of those areas, love to see you there. In fact, uh, in Port St. Lucie and out in Seattle, we'll be doing uh, some more info. We're doing some more seminars rather than just speaking at the church out there in Seattle. It's actually Federal Way. I'll be speaking all day Saturday. And I don't. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So I hope you can join me out there if you're in the Northwest. My guest, as I say, is Dr. John Dixon. His book, Bullies and Saints, you really need to get, and you can even get the audible version because uh, John reads it himself and does a wonderful job. John, I love this illustration that you have in the book about the bad behavior that some Christians have exhibited, and you put it into the proper per perspective, the illustration involves playing a cello. Can you explain this illustration? Yeah, I mean, it's it's uh, a simple case of, 
you know, imagining or calling up on Spotify, if you can't imagine, a Bach's cello suite, right? And the opening prelude in the key of G is often regarded by you know, musical boffins as, as one of the most mathematically perfect uh, pieces of music, the way it moves away from uh, the, the, the G and creates a tension and then comes back in this glorious resolution. Um, and and you, if you hear Yo-Yo Ma play it the you know perhaps the greatest uh, cellist um it's it you know you you're hearing it in all its glory and you can you can tell how beautiful it is but if you hear me play it and i have had two <laughs> cello lessons uh if you hear me play the cello suite um i can get past the first bar before i am undone <laughs> and and you might listen to me attempt the cello suite and think um was that you know could bach actually write a tune that sounds terrible, <laughs> right? Um, but of course, we know to distinguish between the original composition and the terrible performance. And my point is obvious. I mean, the composition Jesus wrote uh, is the most sublime uh, ever composed. Love your enemies, something he took all the way to the cross as he gave his life for enemies. And um, then Christians, you know, who are inspired by that gospel, who know they are loved by God, and then they try and love others, they do it failingly. Their performance is sometimes way off key. They're they're way out of the G. They stay in the tension area. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet, throughout Christian history, there are prophets. You know, um, you, you could call them prophets. But, you know, Christian leaders who rise up and say, "Hey, no, we need to get back to the original tune," and they they drag it back to the key of G, and it's and it sounds beautiful. But my my point is, you got to distinguish between the performance of Christians and the original beautiful tune of Jesus. That's a wonderful illustration. I wish I had that when I debated Christopher Hitchens a couple of times. In fact, at one point, I said to Christopher, "I said, Christopher, much of what you write in your book is true, uh, but." what you're writing in your book is actually agreeing with our worldview that we are fallen and we need a savior. And uh, I I can't live up to the pure words of Christ. If I could, I wouldn't need a savior. So even though you're pointing out all of our warts and all of our sins, you're in a way confirming that we all need a savior. And that's, by the way, what this book, Bullies and Saints, does, ladies and gentlemen. It goes pretty much century by century through Mm. all of the previous 20 and pulls out the good, the bad, and the ugly, and it, it it just gives a fair representation of what happened. In fact, you have a couple of chapters, uh, Dr. Dixon, on Constantine, who lived from 312, or actually was the emperor from 312 to 337, really the first Christian Roman emperor. Hmm. And there's a lot of uh, misunderstandings about Constantine. What, would, what do you think are the top two or three myths that people today believe about Constantine and what he did and didn't do? Oh, there are so many myths. I mean, one is the the myth that he wasn't really a Christian. Okay, mm-hmm. it was all just political machinations. He spotted that the the Christians were, you know, on the ascendancy, and so he, you know, he sort of pinched that god and that community to rebuild the empire or something like that. I actually heard a podcast by Joe Rogan uh, of all people the other day where he was sprouting that that myth, mm-hmm. um, and n- no no historian who knows what they're talking about <laughs> thinks that um, he he really was. I mean, for all his flaws and everything, he really was. Uh, he perceived himself anyway to be a loyal follower of Jesus Christ. He had some kind of experience that convinced him that Christ was the Lord and the other gods uh, were not. And we know this from his own letters, from his decrees, from the laws. It's very clear he he he, he was 
some kind of Christian, even though we might debate about his discipleship. Um, I guess the on the flip side, there is the um, myth that he forced Christianity on the empire, you know, um, that he somehow made it the state religion. That is not true. That is true of 50 years later. The emperors after Constantine did uh, begin to impose Christianity, but not Constantine himself. He had a rather tolerant view of um, allowing all religions to flourish, even though he was very clear in his decrees, I wish you all became Christians, but I'm not going to force you to become Christians because mm-hmm. then you would re- resent Jesus Christ. He actually said that. Uh, so um, he didn't impose Christianity. And I guess the other is that he um, invented the idea of Jesus being God. You know, this is the classic Dan Brown, uh, right. what is it, the Da Vinci Code. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, Jesus was just a man until that point. That is nuts. I mean, because we have so many uh, writings from centuries before Constantine where the Christians are declaring Jesus God. Um, the Council of Nicaea was not, <laughs> you know, the time they elevated Jesus to be uh, to be God. So there are many myths. I think he's a mixed character. Hey, mm-hmm. you know, aren't we? You know, we all what are. Will, yeah. two, you know, mm-hmm. 200 years from now, what what will people say about Frank and John? You know, right. Um, so um, well, you go on the internet careful. and see what they're saying about us now, John, and it's not pretty. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Good point. <laughs> That's right. You can you can see it all right now. In the name of inclusion, tolerance and diversity, we are not included for holding a diverse view. I can tell you that right now. Um, yeah. Now, uh, you also have a real fascinating discussion about religious freedom regarding the early church apologist Tertullian. He lived from 160 to 225. And you connect him to Thomas Jefferson. And you actually cover this in in a podcast, uh, your podcast. And again, friends, if you haven't discovered the Undeceptions podcast, stop this recording right now and put it in your your playlist, okay, because it's an excellent podcast. It's so well produced. It's way better than this podcast because you're going to get music coming in and out. You're going to get all sorts of clips coming in and out. And uh, John does a wonderful job, not only apologetically, but but theologically. Uh, So you want to you want to look at the Undeceptions podcast. Uh, But tell the story of the connection somehow between Tertullian and Thomas Jefferson, if you would. Well, we often uh, think of Jefferson and his kind as the originators of the idea of religious freedom. Um, you know, that, that all religions should be separate from the state. The state shouldn't boss religions around. Religions shouldn't boss um, uh, uh, the, the, the government around. Mm-hmm. Um, and Jefferson did have famous debates in the 1780s about this. Um, but this was already taught by Tertullian back in the early third century. Tertullian, the the great uh, apologist, theologian, um, in his letter to Scapula, the governor, uh, in Carthage. And um, he makes very clear that um, really religion should be a thing of freedom of conscience, not imposed by the state. Now, the connection between the two isn't just that Thomas Jefferson centuries later had similar ideas. We know that Thomas Jefferson had a copy of Tertullian's actual book Mm -hmm. uh, uh, to Scapula. And... More than that, um, we know that um, he marked that very passage about religious freedom in his own copy of Tertullian. Okay, aha, so he knew what was going on. And even better than that, um, we have his private notes, uh, Jefferson's private notes, uh, for the debates that took place in the State House of Virginia um, uh, over religious freedom. And um, in in the margins of his own private notes... Uh, he has written out in Latin this very passage from 
Tertullian. Wow. And mm. this was only discovered two years ago, by the way, by um, Robert Wilkin, who's a very famous scholar at the University of uh, Virginia, <clears throat> who, who got into the private library and archives and discovered this and to his amazement realised that Thomas Jefferson knew full well that his famous view that religion shouldn't boss the government around and government shouldn't boss religion around um, was not original to him or his Enlightenment secular thinkers. It mm. was something already taught in the third century by one of the greatest theological minds of that period. So you're telling me, John Dixon, that Thomas Jefferson was not sitting around watching TikTok videos. He was actually doing research. Man, he was a freak. He was a freak. Thomas, though, all those founding fathers- Oh, they were amazing, were, weren't they? Were so yeah. learned, you know, mm -hmm. because they came from a time where they did this really strange activity called reading books. That's right. And they, they, they read so many books. And so you think Jefferson, who was no Christian, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, the famous Jefferson Bible, he cuts out all the miracles of Jesus. He right. cuts out the atoning death, you know, right? Um, so he, he's no devotee, but he, he still studied um, mm -hmm. uh, Christian theology because he knew that all the best ideas of the West didn't pop out in the Enlightenment, you know, just a century before him. He knew that some of these were inheritances from, uh, from the Christian church. Don't you long for skeptics and atheists and free thinkers today to be like Thomas Jefferson, mm, you know, mm. really understand the Christian faith and tradition. Wow. Really well read. Give yes. us the old atheists, please. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. The new atheists are just throwing bombs at us and they're not really getting involved in the arguments. That's one of the frustrations I've had in debating atheists is they don't even want to engage on the arguments and, and they don't seem to understand history or philosophy very well. So it's really hard to debate these issues uh, you also spend, and, and friends, the book again is called Bullies and Saints. My guest is Dr. John Dixon. You're, you go chapter by chapter. You talk about a, a very interesting character, Gregory of Nyssa, and this is from 330 to 395. He was really opposed to slavery. And as you write, the New Testament expressly forbids slave trading, 1 Timothy 1, 9 to 11. Uh, the kind of slavery spoken about in the Bible was indentured servitude. It was not the race-based kind of slavery we had here in America 160 or so years ago. Why didn't, and we'll continue this in the, on the other side of the break, but why didn't his opposition lead to the eradication of slavery then, do you think, John? Hmm. Uh, good question. <laughs> it's a giant hmm. topic. Uh, basically, Christianity did diminish the slave system mm -hmm. because Christians were freeing slaves left, right, and center. They were using church money. Uh, both for the poor, to care for the poor, but also to free slaves. Mm. And they ended up having an impact that I'd love to tell you about after the we're break. Gonna, we're going to talk more about it right after the break. That's my guest, Dr. John Dixon from the University of Sydney. His new book, Bullies and Saints, an honest look, and it is an honest look at the good and evil of Christian history. You want to get it? You might want to get the audible version too, because John reads it, does a wonderful job. Well worth reading or listening to. I'm Frank Turek. We're back in two minutes. Don't go anywhere. Were the early Christians bullies or saints? How about the modern day Christians? And how about everyone in between? To learn the real answer to that, you need to get the new book, Bullies and Saints, by my guest today, Dr. John Dixon, an historian who teaches at the University of Sydney, Sydney, that's right, down under in Australia. He also is a visiting professor at Oxford University, that small community college you may have heard about out there in, uh, out there in England. 
where John Lennox is also a professor. Uh, John, we were just talking about before the break, this issue of slavery. And uh, why don't you pick up the discussion there? Because we were trying to discover why didn't Christianity eradicate slavery much earlier than it did? I think it's lamentable that it, that it didn't, mm-hmm. um, but it, but it's probably true to say it lit a long fuse that did eventually uh, transform uh, the Western world. Um, someone like Gregory of Nyssa did preach against slavery and forbade it in in uh, under his influence. Um, people like Augustine, um, the, the great intellectual uh, from um, Hippo in North Africa. Uh, he was involved in raids to free slaves, uh, which is pretty cool. What a, ch- a cool church activity. Hey, uh, after morning tea, we're heading down to the to the boats. Um, <clears throat> um, and then in the 600s, the, there's a very famous bishop called Bishop Eligius. I mean, he's, he was famous back then. Hardly anyone's heard of him now. And um, he, he insisted on freeing slaves. He was one of the wealthiest people uh, in Europe and went around Europe buying slaves and freeing them. Uh, with no strings attached. And um, so Christianity did diminish slavery dramatically. However, economic conditions uh, turned uh, in the late medieval, really early modern period, and the demand for more slave labor uh, just rocketed. And there were economic pressures to do it. There were beginning to be scientific pressures uh, around racial, you know, um, Mm -hmm. the thought that the other races were below um, other races. And then religion was used to bolster it. So that, you know, religion was complicit in it, in the modern slave movement. But then again, um, anyone who's studied this topic knows that it wasn't economic arguments or scientific arguments that ended up overturning slavery, first in the British realm, then in America. Uh, It was basically theoretical, metaphysical, and theological arguments about the innate equality of human beings. That, that ended up overthrowing um, slavery. So I'm not denying Christians did support slavery, particularly in the modern slave movement, um, but it was also uh, economists and scientists who supported it. So we're all in this terrible boat together, um, but it wasn't economic or science arguments that got us out of it. It was yes. basically theological anthropology. In fact, N.T. Wright in his biography of Paul called slavery at the time sort of the oil of society. Uh, That was the way things got done. People were put into forced labor. Not that he was saying it was right. He was just saying that's what kept the economy going. And uh, people also don't seem to recognize, in fact, if they they read the the subtitle of Origin of Species, they realize, (laughs) if they read the subtitle, that that Darwin actually believed in favored races. Hmm. And and that the Caucasian was the top race and anything below that was inferior. And of course, Hitler used that kind of uh, philosophy to justify what he was doing, getting rid of the undesirables because the survival of the fittest requires that maybe the, the undesirables or the less fit give their resources to the more fit to create the super race, the uber race. Now, to be fair, Darwinism doesn't dictate or prescribe any kind of morality that's one of the problems. There is no morality in the Darwinian world. And even Richard Dawkins was wise enough to say, I don't want Darwinian, Darwinian morality in our society. Uh, but as you point out, I think it's in the last chapter of the book, Bullies and Saints, John, that although some atheists will claim that the only way uh, you can really get people to do a lot of evil is with religion, you point out that atheism, while it doesn't prescribe morality one way or the other, doesn't 
restrain anybody morally. Can you unpack that for us? Yeah, well, um, I think it's widely recognized that atheism you, you know, doesn't believe in any moral framework built mm -hmm. into the creation or any moral judge or arbiter, no creator whose character, you know, defines the good. And so um, any morality, uh, you know, a beautiful humanitarian morality is consistent with atheism. At least it's not inconsistent with atheism. Right. Um, but so is a Hitler. Um, so uh, I think that's that's clear. Um, the difference with the, the Christian faith is, you, you know, you've got to defy the explicit teachings of Jesus to be racist, um, mm. to, to denigrate other human beings, because Jesus believed that everyone's made in the image of God and, is, and God loves all, the, the righteous and the, and the, and the wicked. Um, <clears throat> so when a Christian is honoring people and setting up hospitals for them and so on, they are following the, the, the beautiful tune. Uh, when they are... Um, excluding people and harming people, you know, for Jesus' sake, uh, or racist, they are disobeying uh, that beautiful tune. They are they are way out of tune. That can't be said of atheism, of course. Yes. Now, the book starts actually with the Crusades. Hmm. You have the first chapter or two about the Crusades, an awful period in Christian history. Can you tell us the difference between what and you cover this in the book as well, just war theory and the holy wars of the Crusades. Yeah, um, just war was the, again, it was a Christian theory that has influenced Western military ethics. Um, just war theory was really from St. Augustine in the early 5th century, trying to work out, okay, if we are a state that likes Christianity, how do we conduct ourselves in a way that is you know, vaguely in tune with the teaching of Jesus? Yes, Jesus wanted peace, but what if, what if um, barbarian raiders are coming in and raping and pillaging a defenseless village? Mm -hmm. Surely Christians ought to go and protect them. And so he came up with this, these conditions. It must be self-defense, must be proportional. You must beat uh, the enemy in a way that doesn't leave them resentful or diminish their humanity. You mustn't take prisoners of war and then kill them. All these sorts of just war traditions that have influenced our, our world. Um, sadly, not enough. Um, mm. Holy war is different. Holy war developed Augustine's thought but then said, no, no, it's God's will that you mm. destroy the infidel on the other side of the world um, because you've got to get rid of that religion and establish Christianity. Augustine would never have believed that. He, he would have denounced that approach. Um, but uh, by the 10th and 11th centuries, uh, this is what was taught. And some of the popes even offered you forgiveness of sins if you participated in mm. one of these crusades. Um, it, it was a very theological thing. If you take up the sword and go and kill a Muslim, uh, you, you will atone for your sins and God will welcome you uh, into his paradise. That sounds now, like the Quran. <clears throat> yeah, I mean, it, it, yeah. Was, a, it was a form of, yeah. of jihad. Um, right. Now, I would say, if I'm honest uh, and pushed into a corner, the first crusade probably was, in theory, a just war mm -hmm. in the sense that it was a response to Muslim aggression, centuries right. of Muslim aggression. Um, and so they wanted to go and help the Byzantine Christian Empire over in the east, what we call Turkey, which was being pressured by by uh, Muslim armies. So theoretically, they went to do that, and that's just. Um, but the way they conducted themselves once they got mm. there, the theology mm. overlaid about you know forgiveness through killing is, is despicable blasphemy. And people misunderstand. They think Christianity spread by means of the Crusades. The first crusade didn't begin until 1095. So Christianity had been established for centuries prior and to that. And friend, they were, they were failures. 
That's right. What we don't they were. Remember. Yeah, the Crusades <laughs> were an utter failure. Uh-huh. Um, only recently d- does the Muslim world think of the Crusades as the big bad Western bully. Right. For most of Muslim history, the Crusades were those silly things the Christians tried to do to expel us from our land, and <laughs> they, you know, obviously their God's not not the true God because we conquered them. The Crusades were a failure. Yet you also talk about the Spanish Inquisition, which was about a three and a half century. Mm-hmm. Uh, Inquisition to try and convert people, or at least fetter, uh, you know, uh, ferret out heresy, that kind of thing. You also obviously point out it was wrong. However, how does the Spanish Inquisition register on history's greatest atrocities? It's always hard, isn't it? To you know, if you say, however, you know, yeah, the, I know. Christian, <laughs> the, the Crusades were bad, the Inquisitions were bad. However, um, mm-hmm. but I guess all I want to say is, uh, well, two things. One. From the records we now have, and, you, and and people need to know, it's only from the 1990s that medieval scholars have had the full records of the Inquisition. Why is so, that? Uh, because the Vatican released them all. Oh, okay. Um, yeah, and and so most of what we know about the Crusades before that uh, was, you know, just propaganda. Mm-hmm. Um, but we now know that uh, people, you know, in the Inquisition prisons. Um, were treated far better than in the secular prisons. And we have records of people in the secular prisons begging to be released into the Inquisition courts and prison system <laughs> were, because it was were far they, fairer. Were they trying to blaspheme so they could get into the... <laughs> 100%. We have, really? an explicit, we have an explicit example of this, of <laughs> oh, someone wow. blaspheming in order to get out of the secular court. Into um, uh, So that's number one. Um, uh, it, number two, it, it killed over its 350 years Five to six thousand people. This this is based on now the best research that we have. That's mm. not trying to minimise it. Between five and six thousand is the is the agreed number. Now that's terrible. That's five or six thousand people too many. But right. just compare it with um, the French Revolution, which in nine months in the terror, in the name of secular liberty, executed seventeen thousand people in wow. nine months, mm. and the Inquisition killed five to six thousand in three hundred and fifty years. But no mm. one's wandering around today going. Oh, woe is, you know, the French. <laughs> you know, right, woe, right. woe is secularism. Uh-huh. We don't do that. Uh-huh. You also pointed out, I, I couldn't believe the way you put this, but in the book you said that Stalin killed more people in one week on average than the, than the whole Spanish Inquisition killed in 350 years. Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, how many people was Stalin responsible for killing? Um, the numbers vary, um, but about 20 million. It's incredible. Mm. And and nobody connects that with atheism because, as you said earlier, he didn't do it in the name of atheism, but his atheism gave no moral restraint on his behavior. Mm. That's really the problem. Yeah, and the same but, can be said of Mao, yeah. uh, Mao Zedong, um, Pol Pot. Uh, mm-hmm. They were all avowed atheists. And it wasn't that their atheism inspired them, but it certainly gave them permission. They had There was no one looking over them, uh, no moral law built into the universe so they can just do whatever is expedient mm. john in your opinion what's the darkest stain on church history you know i part of you me got a lot to, to choose say, from yeah, yeah you got a lot to choose part of me from. wants to say the inquisitions the crusades slavery yeah, yeah. um but probably not uh, none of those probably um excuse my um that's all right. Beautiful alarm. Um, probably the child sexual abuse scandals uh, of the, recent times. The current, the current, yeah. 
And yeah, let's let's so talk that- a little bit about that right after the break. Mm-hmm. My guest today is Dr. John Dixon. His brilliant book is called Bullies and Saints, An Honest Look at the Good and Evil of Christian History. He also has a wonderful podcast you'd really enjoy, especially if you like this podcast. You're really going to love his. It's called Undeceptions, where he takes misunderstood concepts and and enlightens people on what really the truth is. So you're going to want to check out Undeceptions. You're listening to I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist with Frank Turek back in two. Blessings this Thanksgiving, ladies and gentlemen. We have a lot to be thankful for. We have a lot to be thankful for, especially from our Savior, Jesus, who despite the fact that some of us do not wear his coat well, still shines through when you read the scriptures and you look at some of the positive periods, immensely positive periods of church history. We'll get into that with my guest, Dr. John Dixon. Uh, John, just before the break, you had mentioned the darkest stain, in your opinion, is the current sex scandal. You have an entire chapter on that here in Bullies and Saints. What can you say about it in, in, a, in just a minute or two? Yeah, I almost wanted to avoid writing about it because I thought, I thought that deserves you know, a whole mm-hmm. book. Right. Um, but I, I went through you know, the, the shameful statistics that, that we now have on record uh, where there is, there is an outsized um, uh, number of people, uh, young people who are abused within church structures, church mm. schools, church orphanages, and, uh, and churches. And the best research ever done on this was actually done in Australia. That's not just me being uh, a proud Australian. <laughs> but we had what's called a Royal Commission, which is the, you know, it's like the Supreme Court of Investigations um, that uncovered terrible abuse in government uh, and, and secular institutions, but also church institutions, and discovered uh, terrible proportions of, of kids being being abused. Um, all I say in the chapter really is, um, well, two things. One, I'm profoundly sorry to any kid, uh, adult who has been abused by the church in any way. Uh, and two, hopefully everyone can see that, that someone who abuses the vulnerable is doing the very opposite of what Jesus mm. called for and Jesus mm. embodied in his own self-giving on the cross. Another aspect of this, ladies and gentlemen, is that if there is no God, none of this is really wrong. And yet all of us know it's wrong because without God's nature being our standard, it's just a matter of opinion. So as tragic as all this is, it actually points back to a standard of good. And uh, you, John, point out that uh, that standard has shined brightly throughout history in many ways. Um what do you think the most important contributions that Jesus and his church have made to our moral beliefs and practices now that we often take for granted? These are beliefs and practices that were never taught by Greeks, never taught by Romans, not even most other world religions. Yeah, and that's the thing to hold in mind. Um, torture, warfare, bigotry, slavery, none of these is original to Christianity. The Romans mm-hmm. were doing just fine on all those counts before right. Christians came along, right? And so mm-hmm. did every other culture. Uh, throughout history. Um, things that you didn't find in Greece and Rome or Babylon or Saxony or among the Vikings or whatever um, that were found in Christianity and now are just assumed are things like humility, that is using mm. my power for the good of others, you know, allowing myself to be low for the sake of lifting up the high. We now regard that as an honorable virtue. The other would be um, equality, 
Uh, we think of that as a secular enlightenment value. That's rubbish. We know the early Christians taught this. Um, we know that they said that every human being is made in the image of God. It's a Jewish idea originally, but mm -hmm. the Christians took that and applied it to everyone on the planet. <clears throat> and um, it's this idea that we can see in the, in the Middle Ages, the so-called Dark Ages, church law insisted on the equality of the very poor and vulnerable, uh, and, and therefore they have claims against the rich. And the third, um, I'd say, is charity, which sort of flows out of that. Um, this notion of humanitarian care did not exist in Greece and Rome. It's so hard for people to get their heads around this. It didn't exist, mm. but it came into Western law from church law. And we know this, so you can document exactly how it happened, how the canon laws about the rich needing to care for the poor and about systems of you know safety nets for, for, for the very, very poor were, were lifted from canon law into state law, into secular law mm. uh, in the 1600s. We can watch it. Everyone, we can just watch those laws being taken over. And then those laws were brought into American law and European law. And now we just assume you've got to care for the desperately poor who aren't poor through their own, you know, um, decision-making. You've got to, you've got to do it. It's a moral obligation. But that, that, that is a Christian gift to our world because it, it derives from God's love for everyone equally. Mm. Yeah, you even point out that uh, Constantine was was big on this in the 300s and a few decades later when Julian the Apostate, the, uh, the an emperor that succeeded him, I think was his cousin at some point. Was yeah. was that Constantine's cousin? Yeah, uh, his nephew. Yeah, nephew. It was nephew, yeah. and 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 he. He was called Julian the Apostate because he decided he wasn't a Christian anymore. Mm -hmm. What did he say about charity? What was he trying to do? He was trying to get people to be more charitable who weren't yeah, he Christians? he hated that Christianity was growing. And we have mm -hmm. letters he wrote in 362 um, saying, help, the, the Christians are going to take over the world if we're not careful <laughs> through the stealth of their good deeds. And he established, uh, he established a welfare system in the pagan temples, uh, modeled explicitly. We have the letter modeled on the Christian church charities because he, he he literally wanted to beat Christians at their own game. Of course, you couldn't inspire pagan temples to have charitable systems because they didn't mm. have the theoretical framework, right. uh, you know, for caring for the ugly and vulnerable and lower classes that you that you did have in, in the churches. And he died the next year anyways, 363. Um, and um, that it never it never took off. But he knew the secret to Christianity's mm. growth was that they actually lived like they believed God was a God of love. <laughs> mm, mm, mm. Those terrible Christians. That's right. Now, Christopher Hitchens cited the long conflict between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland as evidence that religion poisons everything. Of course, Hitchens had no standard by which to judge anything right or wrong if he was an atheist, and he was. But was that conflict more about religion or politics, John? And I know you can't get into a lot of details here. We just got a couple of minutes. But what was that really about? Um, well, it was religion was caught up in it, of course. But uh -huh. anyone who knows the history knows that there were huge conflicts between England and Ireland before the Protestant Reformation, right? The kings of England were always trying to impose their rule on Ireland, uh -huh. so that, that bitterness was always there. But in the 1600s, um, the monarch in England uh, planted uh, Protestants, because now England was Protestant, uh, planted Protestants in Northern Ireland. Uh, what mm. we call Northern Ireland, and because they were all Protestants, and they, you know, they were farmers, and they, you know, they did relatively well, and um, the 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 local Irish who were all Catholics thought this was just more of the same that had been going on for centuries before the Protestant Reformation. Um, this is the English uh, and the Scottish uh, imposing 
taking our land and imposing themselves on us. And that really is the reason for the conflict. It just so happened that those who were implanted in Northern Ireland were all Protestants because they'd mm. been sent from, from England. And, um, you know, people people in the midst of the conflict know that they weren't really fighting over, you know, whether you can pray to Mary or whether right, transubstantiation right. is true. That's right, just right. Not, not the argument. That's not what was going on. <laughs> when, they, when they say, you know, I hate the Protestants or I hate the Catholics, they just mean those mob over there in that community, right. in that Catholic community. Mm -hmm. And the great proof of this is the Good Friday Agreement, the thing that ended the whole... Um, Northern Ireland conflict, the 30, 30 years of troubles, you know, the, those recent troubles, um, you read it and, and there's almost nothing about religion. <laughs> it's all to do with nationalism right. and, mm -hmm. uh, and, and loyalty to, to, to the British Empire. This so is all that, in the book. That really can't count. I would say to, Daw uh, to Dawkins and to Hitchens, that doesn't count. I'm sorry. Yeah. That one doesn't count. I'll give you lots of other ones. Not that one. This is all in Bullies and Saints, so you need to get the book. John, you researched, and, and you're an historian, so this it probably comes naturally to you, but you researched every century of church history, the full scope. What was the most dis surprising discovery you made in doing it? Probably drilling down on the eighth century. This is the middle of the so-called dark ages, mm -hmm. right? Which really didn't exist, right? There, right? There's no such thing as the dark ages. When uh, Charlemagne was emperor of Europe um, and was quite a bully. I mean, he, he actually engaged in <clears throat> close to, to jihad. But mm -hmm. one of his advisors was a Christian man, a church deacon, brilliant theologian, brilliant educator. He convinced Charlemagne not to engage in that kind of jihad, but to persuade the pagans up in the north and bring them gently to Christ. But the other great thing about Alcuin, this guy, Alcuin of York, who was in, in Europe, uh, in Charlemagne's court, is he established an education system in the 8th century um, that was open to rich and poor, boys mainly, but also girls. And he is really the origins of our Western tradition of a liberal arts education mm. um, from an early age. And so by the end of Alcuin's um, tenure, as sort of like the education secretary for Europe, um, he had established schools, and that's really the origins of the universities. And he did it all in the name of Christ. He really did. Wow. He thought God had made the world. God is wise. God has imprinted his wisdom in all of the world. So the more you learn about the stars, the more you learn about mathematics, the more you learn about literature and philosophy and theology, you're, you're knowing the mind of God. So there was this great educational impulse that, that learning was worship. And it transformed Europe and uh, developed what we call the Carolingian Renaissance, centuries before the more secular Renaissance we think mm -hmm. of in the 14th and 15th centuries. What's the one big idea you want people to take from reading Bullies and Saints, John? Well, I guess I want Christians to know that our story is mixed and mm -hmm. that we have no um, reason for triumphalism, thinking, mm -hmm. you know, we're the best, chuck out the rest. Um, right. So I want to crush triumphalism, but at the same time, I want to give Christians hope that when we listen to the tune of Jesus, the gospel, and, and live and sing in tune with that, you know, in our lives, then we can change the world. Mm. For the non-Christian, I want them to see, yes, Christians have done terrible things, uh, but these are things you find in every culture. These are things of the human heart. I want people who aren't Christians to look at what are the unique things that Christianity brought. Because that isn't torture, it isn't warfare, it isn't bigotry or slavery. It is humility, charity, 
equality. John, what's your website so people can learn more? Oh, undeceptions.com. Undeceptions.com. That's the name of his podcast, ladies and gentlemen. And as I said earlier, you want to start listening to Undeceptions. And if there's a place that you can donate on that website to his podcast, please do. Because as you, when you listen to it, you'll realize it takes a lot of production, a lot of time, and it's well worth it, ladies and gentlemen. John, thank you so much for being on the show. Thanks, brother. So good to chat. That is the great John Dixon. The book, Bullies and Saints, you need to get it. Get it in Audible, get it in Kindle, get the hardcover, share it. Well worth a read. Educate yourself on that. I'm Frank Turk, ladies and gentlemen. Great being with you on the American Family Radio Network. See you next week. God bless.